Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 61st episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday, the 24th of March, 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Thanks again this week to the very generous monthly subscribers and, of course, to the new iTunes reviewers, N. Villick and Hipster69 Beanpole. The show is also now available with TuneIn, where you can listen to it on your mobile phone. This week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Dr. Paul Cockshot, reader in the Computer Science Department of Glasgow University. We talk of the socialist calculation debate with the Soviet plans for an internet Google versus a planned economy and the problems with council communism We joined the conversation as the good doctor tells us what the Greeks had to say about the design of our representative democratic system The modern societies are, modern Western societies, are typically described as democracies. But if you read experts on ancient democracy, they say that what we have now is very different from what the word democracy originally meant, because it's a Greek term and it described a particular political system that existed in certain Greek cities. And if you go back to Aristotle, the key principles of a, a democracy are the selection of officials by lot. That is to say, people are randomly selected to form the the assembly, the the governing council. You don't have elected councils. You have 50 citizens chosen at random to be the council. And they serve as a council for a month, and then you get someone else chosen at random. The point being that it was based on scientific random sampling. So you actually got a representative body. Now, what we we now call democracy is a parliamentary system, which Aristotle describes that kind of state as an aristocratic constitution, because he says wherever you've got elections, the people who are better born and better educated come to dominate. So basically, the, the aristocracy come to dominate the political system, or the upper class come to dominate the political system. And you only have to look at the social composition of parliaments to see that it's way unrepresentative of the population as a whole. It's heavily skewed, obviously, towards men. It's heavily skewed towards better educated people. It's heavily skewed towards people higher up on the income scale. And that just arises from the nature of elections, in that in order to be elected, you, you have to say, I'm better than the average. I'm a a better person. And who in a class society is going to be seen as better is people higher up in the social hierarchy. So an electoral system always ends up biasing towards people higher in the social hierarchy. And the actual constitutions that you you have in the United States, for example, were not based on, on Athenian democracy. They were based on the Roman Republic, which gave the citizens a very limited power, which was the power to elect people. It didn't allow legislation to be carried out directly by the public. 
Now, in, in the Athenian case, you had legislation was carried out by the public as a whole, or the citizens as a whole, gathering in a town square and voting on matters. The only places that do that are the Swiss cantons. So, arguably, the only democratic country in the world at the moment is Switzerland. All the rest have variants of aristocratic constitutions. What was the political structure then like in the Soviet Union? What was that based on? Well, that was based on a hierarchical system of election, so that locally people voted for a local council, and local councils could then... This was the first system that they had until the 30s. Then the, those local councils delegated people to a district council, which then delegated people to a national or supreme council, a supreme Soviet. The problem is that any hierarchical system like that concentrates the bias that towards one party and makes it more makes it overwhelming. It's 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 a known disadvantage of the first past the post system which you have in in Britain and a lot of uh, former British states is that you have a huge bias against small parties and towards the largest party. If you filter that through three levels of election, the bias becomes even greater. So that although the system is set up that way, and at local councils in, in the early years of the Soviet Union, you might have had people from multiple parties being elected. The biggest party, the party with the biggest support, which was the Bolshevik party, would have a majority at the first level. And any place that had a Bolshevik majority at the, at the local level would only delegate Bolsheviks to the next level up. And the result was that by the time you reached the top level, non-Bolshevik representation got squeezed out completely. So a, like a minor advantage at the start can kind of ossify a whole structure into one-party domination. It, 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 it leads almost inevitably to one-party domination. I mean, people used to put it, leftists used to put it forward as a critique of the Soviet system that it wasn't real Soviet democracy, that it didn't have this council hierarchy system. But it's exactly that council hierarchy system that guarantees a one-party dictatorship in the end. And what did they shift to when they got rid of this in the Soviet Union? Well, there were two stages to that. In the 1930s, they introduced direct election rather than indirect election. But they, they still restricted it. Well, at that stage, they restricted it to only Communist Party candidates. As soon as that restriction on it only being Communist Party candidates was removed by Gorbachev, Aristotle's principle immediately came into force, that the composition of the Supreme Soviet shifted from one which was broadly representative of the population to one which became biased towards the educated classes, managerial classes, etc. So that happened under Gorbachev. The point being that if you, as soon as you introduce an uncontrolled competitive electoral system, the people who are hiring the social hierarchy have an advantage. Under Brezhnev, they had a quota systems to have quotas of, of numbers of collective farmers, numbers of women, numbers of miners, etc. in the parliament. Uh, so they pre-selected the candidates to get this kind of mix. Once you remove that one party pre-selecting the candidates, you end up with a bias towards the better educated upper class section of society who are the people who are going to benefit most from 
privatization and therefore you get support for privatization policies in a parliament elected that way which you wouldn't have got under the controlled franchise that they'd had in under Brezhnev. This structure of, of uh, different representative layers, that worked for the revolutionary period quite well. Well, if you want to produce rapid change, it's actually helpful to have one party ruling with a clear majority. Um, the problem is that it, it, it ossifies it, and over time the people in that party become corrupted by the exercise of power. So whilst it may, may be a great thing for rapid economic development at one stage, it has its disadvantage in the long term. Ironically, it's, it's, it's not actually necessarily something which is specifically Marxist. It's arguable that this is actually the prudenist program, which Marx just described as being put into practice by the Paris Commune. And this description of it being put into practice by the Paris Commune, the hierarchical election system, was then treated as a confirmation that this is the best way to do it. Whereas it wasn't actually specifically something that Marx had developed as an argument, it was something that the Prudenists had developed and put forward in, when they put forward their program in the Paris Commune. What do these critiques of Western current democracy or republicanism, if you want to call it that, and the council system, what do these critiques mean for, say, a future revolutionary? It means now that you ought to be arguing that parliaments shouldn't be elected, parliaments should be drawn at random from the population, and that important issues should be voted on by referendums, with the issues that are going to be put to the vote being determined by a randomly selected jury of some sort, in order to prevent referendums being manipulated for party political purpose. If we think about this way of looking at things, say, deep into a, a utopian future, do we expect to see a, a party, even the existence of parties, with this system? Yeah, well, they would still exist in the sense that they would campaign for changes in public opinion, but they could only gain political purchase to the extent that they had very large numbers of supporters. In order to gain an effect in a randomly selected parliament, you would need to have very large numbers of members. So they won't be targeting specific people, you know, points of power, but you know, the general mass of people and trying to change their and influence their opinions. Yeah, you'd have to recruit millions of people. There'd have to be mass political parties in a way that you, you had, to some extent, mass political parties in, up until the 1950s or so. And the Conservative Party in Britain had over a million members in the 1950s. So the point is that it, 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 even if you have a, a randomly selected body, the, the most articulate and politically aware people are likely to have a disproportionate interest. So political parties would still have an interest in recruiting members and agreeing a party line that they would argue but they would never form a majority in any assembly. They would be minorities in an assembly arguing for a position and trying to convince non-party members of the public to go along with them.
So, Professor, can you tell us about what the socialist calculation debate is or was? Well, it was a debate which really took place in the 1920s and 30s, starting off, well, largely initially in Austria, um, between two different groups of Austrian economists. On the one hand, there was a guy called Neurer, who had been an economist working on planning the German war economy. And he wrote a article on what war economy taught about real economics, about economics in general, to the effect that uh, the war taught that you you didn't win a war with bonds and debentures, that you, you won a war by supplying food and, and steel and ammunition and nitrates, and that it was it came down to managing the real economy, and that one could therefore, in principle, run a large-scale economy by using what he called in-kind calculation, which meant calculating how much of the different types of goods you needed and planning their allocation, as, as had been done in the wartime economy. This idea was then attacked by another Austrian economist, von Mises, who argued that this type of, that any kind of rational calculation was impossible without the intermediation of money. That Neurath's idea of being able to, to do economic calculation in physical terms wasn't even in principle possible. Because according to Mises, the, the difficult problem is not continuation of the economy producing the same thing from one time period to the next, but carrying out change and deciding what is the, the best way to invest in new equipment or new techniques of production in order to produce change. And that to do that, you had to have some kind of monetary calculation in order to arrive at a rational answer. So that was essentially the setting of the debate between Neurath and Mises, with Mises essentially coming to found the what's now known as the Austrian School of Economics, which starts with Mises, possibly in Menger before that, but uh, Mises and then Hayek, uh, which was obviously very influential in the Thatcher period. Uh, the basic claim of it was that socialist economic calculation couldn't be rational and would never work. Now, was this a critique of a central planned communist government or of all communist-type governments, even ones that are more distributed? Well, it it was a basically a, an argument that you couldn't do without monetary calculation. When we say monetary calculation, we basically mean people using money and in the marketplace to decide. In the marketplace. And you need, in particular, he said you need prices for capital goods. And therefore you needed a capital goods market. It then got elaborated to say, well, not only do you need a capital goods market, but you need entrepreneurs who derive their income from profits to make a rational calculation. In the absence of such entrepreneurs, you'll never get um, rational costings. Now, this is partly based on essentially a subjective theory of value, which the Austrian school held. 
and the idea that the economy was basically a means of communication between different subjective viewpoints, uh, which is very different from what Neurath was saying. He was saying that there is a inherent structure to the feedback relations between industries, which is determined by the kind of technology you have, and that the criteria for social welfare can't be measured in terms of national income, but you actually have to measure it in terms of non-monetary units like life expectancy and uh, levels of health and levels of education. Uh, basically, he was in the 1920s giving a list of the kinds of things which appear in the UN Development Index nowadays. So in our modern economies or capitalist economies now, we hear that you know GDP this year is, say, up 1.7%, and this is supposed to mean that, hey, look, things are 1.7% better in some kind of measure. But what Neurath would have said is that instead of having one number to describe an economy, we have maybe... 100 numbers to describe an economy in a way that's going to give a rich understanding of human life. Yes, I'm not sure that you'd say 100, but he, he, he listed a whole series of things, including things like the degree to which people feel they have power over their surroundings. We now know on the basis of public health studies that uh, that actually has a big impact on people's health, that uh, more significant than people's absolute level of income is there degree of powerlessness or, or powerfulness in a social hierarchy and studies of life expectancy um, British civil servants for example show that very clearly so that civil servants that are further down the food chain when you equate for all the amount they drink and smoke and everything they live measurably shorter lives yes the, co- the big surprise of the study when they started out in the 60s was that they'd expect it to show that heart disease and things were going to be particularly hitting those with senior management stressful positions. In fact, it showed exactly the opposite, that heart disease was hitting people at uh, the bottom end of the civil service much more than the senior civil servants. And being subjected to layers of hierarchy was far more stressful than carrying managerial responsibility. So this kind of multi-dimensional view of society that Neurath advocated, this is a much more kind of a complex thing to get one's head around or to to understand success about. Yes, I mean, it's there are many things in reality which are not reducible to one dimension. And it's a property of trade in goods and, and services that it creates this one dimension of money and therefore forces everything into that form of, of representation. But if the thing is really a multi-dimensional system, any attempt to represent it on a single dimension is always an approximation. And this goes for even other approximations you might use, like instead of using money, if you used labor time as, as a basis of costing, which was something that Marx advocated, it has certain validity, to the extent that uh, human labor can shift between activities and therefore, in a sense, the amount of work that goes into making something is a real cost of the thing. But that is only a long-term view of things. In the short term, there are all sorts of uh, very physical constraints 
which prevent that being realised. What do you mean by that? Well, let's take the situation of, of uh, Russia when it was industrialising in the 30s. They had plenty of, of available labour, but what limited production in any given industry was the available stocks of different types of machine tools they had. They didn't have any difficulty staffing the machine tools. It was actually uh, how to make the best use of the, the tools they had that was the big problem. And it was here that the sort of the next sort of advance in the issue came up when when a mathematician called Kantorovich, who was working in the plywood industry in, in Russia, came up with a a general technique of optimizing the use of factory equipment, not just machine tools, but all the equipment in a given workplace. He, he tried it out both in the plywood industry, in the locomotive industry in Leningrad, and then somewhere in Siberia in the earth-moving industry, in, in some, some kind of construction industry involving the best use of dig, different types of diggers. Now, this seems like a very narrow problem, you know, how, how to get a the best use of earth movement, but um, he showed that this was a, a particular case of the general problem of solving multi-dimensional constraints in kind, of the type that Neurath had been talking about, and showing that what he did was show, well, you can do this actually without any kind of monetary intervention. You can look at all the different ways you could produce things using different combinations of tools, machine tools that you have available to you, and you can come up with what the optimal allocation of machines to tasks is. He assumes that you're producing several types of plywood, for example, and you've got several different uh, types of machinery in your factory. What is the best allocation of machines to different jobs to get the, the, the mix of output that you want. And the point here is that he came up with a practical way of doing it. Now, I've missed out one stage of the argument. After Neurath, there was this guy, Hayek, who re replicated many of these of von Mises' arguments. But he went beyond that and said that you would never be able to carry out central planning because of the millions of equations you'd have to solve. Now, at that stage, the millions of equations were, you know, in a rather abstract sense, because he doesn't say what form those equations would have, and you'd have to guess that he meant the, the kinds of equations that neoclassical economists assumed for supply and demand. The point was that Kantorovich came up with, okay, this is the type of equation you have, or more strictly speaking, inequality rather than equation, and this is a practical procedure for solving them, and it was a tractable procedure. And he then said, uh, in a book published in the 50s, that this could be applied to the economy as a whole, the same method of optimization that he had successfully applied in the various industries could be applied at a large enough scale to a whole economy. So, so this this technique he had was called linear programming. Now, if I remember correctly, I think I was taught linear programming in school. Would that be possible? It was relatively advanced if you got it at school. I, I don't know. I'm surprised at that, but it's possible. You sure you weren't just taught linear equations? 
No, I think as a part of the Leaving Cert in Ireland, which is the A-levels equivalent, that I think we did linear programming as a section of it. Well, that's impressive. So this was the, the idea then you'd have a few equations and you'd have some constraints on the equations like, you know, raw materials or hours of labor or whatever. And then you can solve a matrix and it'll give you some output, some you solve for X, Y, Z or whatever. And you know what you should be able to do that, that these these equations that you had to solve for a factory level were reasonably simple and you could do them on pencil and paper. Was that true? Yes. I mean, if you read Kantorovich's original paper from the 30s, it, it's very pencil and paper-ish. He's saying, you, you, you say, draw up a table like this and you write these things underneath it and it's pencil and paper calculation steps, which of course is how people did calculations in the 30s still. By the 50s, computers had been invented, so the assumption was that you, you do the calculations on a computer. But the computers that were available in the 1950s really were nothing like uh, big enough to handle the Soviet economy and the Soviet economic plan. That plan was still done in techniques closer to what Neurath had used in, in working on the German economy, which were paper and pencil for uh, filing table techniques. What scale of state planning was done in the Soviet Union at this time? Like, what percentage or what number of these factories were actually done using, programmed using these calculations? And if they weren't done, what did they do? Did they, like, did they plan the very important ones and then the other ones they left to the market? Or, or how was that achieved? Well, the actual technique that they used in the Soviet Union was called the, the method of material balances. And that had come up prior to, to, to Kantorovich. It basically involves saying, okay, we have a certain amount of output available from a given industry. It's going to be spread across a bunch of other industries. We, we will work out how it can be spread across the, the other industries, and then you'd work out the, the, the next industries down the, the food chain or whatever you go on to call it. But it was a, a sort of iterative paper technique. By the 1950s, it was apparently handling about 10,000 different products were planned for, and there were about 30,000 factories subject to, to this plan. So it was quite a complex system, but it was, it was done entirely by manual work, and a surprisingly small bureaucracy ran it. I mean, God's plan had around a couple of thousand employees working on it, which is, is, is remarkably modest, actually, when you think of the, the scale of the country. But this was all pre-computerized paper and pencil techniques. It wasn't really till the late 60s, early 70s that they were in any position to, to do the large-scale planning. And you've got to realize that these things were being proposed just at the very early days of computers. And the computers that were available, you know, would have, have the order of a few tens of kilobytes of memory. So they couldn't do very large calculations. It would be fine for factory-level operations, but not for doing things on the whole economy. Thank you.
Neurath, at the time, he was kind of talking about socialism going to a non-monetary economy. But the Soviet Union didn't go this way. What, what, was, the, what was the decision-making process there? It's, it's quite complicated. I mean, part of it is due to the fact that in the, the 1920s, they had a predominantly agricultural economy. And it was an economy largely made up of private farmers. And therefore, it was inevitably mainly a um, commodity-producing economy. And a key thing was to have a stable monetary unit, a stable ruble on which trade could be carried out. Then, gradually, during the, the 30s, it became an industrialized economy. And more and more of the product was going through the industrial sector and was being planned. But these factories still kept systems of monetary accounts. People were at least partially paid money in uh, wages and money. I say partially paid wages and money because a substantial part of their income was what Neurath would have called income in kind. People had um, subsidized housing, well, not not much in the early stages, but certainly during the 50s and 60s, a large part of people's income was in the form of subsidized housing. There was free social services like education and health, and um, certain key foodstuffs being sold at, let's say, unrealistically low prices, sub-market prices, so that although people were paid money wages, the money wages only made up a certain percentage of their real income. Another part of their real income was in kind. So it was a mixed wage economy in that sense. And partially things were, were, were being distributed at nominal costs, like a nominal fee for an underground ride and things like that, or free district heating and things like that. Other things were paid for in money terms. Now, the, the reason that Russian economists gave for this was that Although it was no longer primarily a private agricultural system, there still was a substantial element of private agriculture, and this private agriculture couldn't go on without a market to, to meet its uh, to sell its products in. Even the the non-private agriculture had a mixture of two types: there were state-run farms, which in principle didn't have to make a profit. But there were also cooperative farms, which had to had at least to break even. They needed a market for their products. And they said that you couldn't eliminate money wages in general, so long as people had to buy a part of their consumer goods on from what were, were private or semi-private producers. This is not, to my mind, entirely convincing, because it doesn't take into account possibility of having not money but labor accounts, for example, to pay for things, which one prominent uh, Russian economist called Strumlin advocated, but his his views were never really very influential. It's kind of ironic that in wartime, capitalist economies tend to go towards planning economies. It's kind of an irony about when the back is against the wall that they drop money in a large to a large extent and go towards a plan. It's not even just at wartime. If you look at the studies that were done by the Rand Corporation for the Ministry of Defence in Britain in the 1990s, when they were deciding whether they were going to 
embark on a new program building aircraft carriers. Before they even could do that, they had to get the RAND Corporation to do a study of the industrial resources in the country to see whether there still were the industrial resources necessary to, to carry this out and whether the, the right number of skilled workers, whether the, was the plant and equipment required to do it. So even in peacetime, the defense ministries have to carry out at least industrial level planning in order to do what they want. So getting back towards the computers we were talking about, what was the state then of computers in Russia, say, in the 50s and 60s, when these ideas of state automated planning came together? Well, if you go to the 60s or 70s, the machines might have been up to about a megabyte in store. They were quite fast, the Besom series machines. Those were the main things used for large-scale planning calculations, but they would just barely have been enough to deal with 10,000 industries. If you wanted to fully disaggregate the, the Russian economy, you'd have had to go to 100,000 or a million products, maybe. And they weren't big enough to do that. But by the, by the end of the 80s, machines of that power were available in America. And had it been seen as a, a key strategic goal, it doesn't seem implausible that uh, machines of that type could have been built in, in Russia because within a short while, by the 1990s, the, the Chinese were able to make them. Say the 60s now, how does, how does that compare to today's computer speed? Like how, how many orders of magnitude slower were they? It's a bit difficult to compare because the, the size of memories of the machines were very small by modern standards. Memory was very expensive. A machine with one megabyte would have been regarded as, as large in the 1960s. But on the other hand, in terms of ability to do floating point arithmetic, for example, they, they were disproportionately good at that. Uh, but they would still be something like five megaflops, maybe. Do you know what a megaflop is? This is millions of additions or subtractions a second, is it? Floating point additions and subtractions. In, it's, it's easy on uh, a laptop like the one I've got at the moment. I can easily get maybe three or four thousand uh, megaflops. So a thousand times faster in your laptop. Yeah, a cheap laptop's about a thousand times faster than a good supercomputer of the 60s. Much the same whether it was um, American or Russian. 1960s, Besom and CDCs were in the same order of magnitude, but the CDCs might have been four or five times faster. But in terms of orders of magnitude, they're about the same. So into this mix came a guy called Glushkov in the Ukraine. Can you tell us about him? Well, he was another of the um, hardware designers at the time, but he was also a, he specialized in designing mini computers, but he was also interested in cybernetics. And came up with this, said that basically if you really want to, to handle a, a rational control of the economy, you, you need hundreds of thousands of, of small computers linked in a network. And that, that is a precondition for it. And he, he proposed you to create a, a, a network of many computers that would be there in all, all factories and production places 
but also I mean, things which seem quite modern sounding, that public libraries would all have um, these machines where people could access data. So it was rather like what later came to be the internet. But these were proposals in the early 1960s. The problem was that you were saying you could do these things, but it would be a very long-term project. Because if you think of how long it actually took to build the internet, the internet didn't become economically useful until the 1990s. And he was saying, well, if we started now in the 60s, it would take us 20 years to do it. And it would cost more than the the moon program and the hydrogen bomb program combined. And the, the, the Russian prime minister said, well, it's a nice idea, but we can't afford it, and wasn't willing to back it. Uh, so the potential to develop an internet was there. Ideas to develop it were being put forward, but they, they backed off from the huge cost that was going to be involved. I think I heard you saying that Khrushchev had this target by 1980 of doing away with this kind of current centrally planned Soviet system and a way to a distributed network. He was doing that quite independently of Grushko and was saying, okay, we'll do it by 1984 and, or 1980 something. There wasn't any commitment to any kind of distributed organization at all. The idea was that there would be such a high level of production that people's key needs would all easily be met and that most things could be distributed for free. That was the key set of ideas. Completely get rid of poverty. People would live at a, a high standard of living, but it would all be available, allocated for free. So explain this a bit more. So is there the idea of maybe with external trade would pay for the standard of living internally, or, or what was the idea? Oh, no, it was based on what at that time seemed very re reasonable projection because the economy was growing at 14% a year or so. 14? Wow. Yeah, and under Khrushchev, which means you double your national income in physical terms. They measured it basically in physical terms. But you, you double output every five years or so. So that it's really, at that rate, you expect it to, to grow very quickly. It was growing the sort of way Russia was growing, China was growing in the 90s and early 2000s. So these kinds of projections seem quite plausible, given how well the economy was doing. And it didn't seem at that stage necessary to fundamentally alter the, the structure of the economy. He went for some degree of regional decentralization, so that the things would be decentralized from Moscow to the republics. It's arguable whether that did any good at all. It tended to, to create competing local interest groups, which didn't necessarily lead to efficiency. But decentralization was not a, a major feature of it. The major feature was abundance. So what was, what was his thinking that if there was such abundance, was it just a reduction in labor time that people would have to, to do? Would they just work less? My problem is that I don't read Russian. <laughs> there, were, there was apparently huge debates about this and speculation about it in Pravda with people contributing what they thought it was going to be like and I think these things about reduced working hours were part of it but it wasn't just a matter of you know the head of state saying this this was 
an issue that there's a lot of social debate about. And lots of different ideas were being put forward, but I don't, I only know that from second-hand accounts since I don't read the Russian. Do you understand that everything has a vibrational frequency? Do you understand that abundance has a vibrational frequency? Yeah? And can you imagine what it feels like? What would the vibrational frequency of abundance feel like if you were going to put words to it? It would feel like ease. It would feel like eagerness. It would feel like clarity. The vibration of abundance feels like fresh air. It feels like clear path. It feels unlimited. It feels always flowing. It feels abundant, 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 meaning never ending, always flowing. It feels like fun. It feels like sureness. It feels like certainty. So, who was Arnold Peters and what was his equivalent principle? Okay, Peters was a German geographer who initially became known for the, the Peters map. Have you seen the Peters globe? It It's a a map which shows the world in realistic area type terms. So it shows Africa being much larger than the Mercatus projection map does, which underestimates the size of Africa, for example. So he was a geographer initially. And then he came up in the 90s with a scheme for a sort of harmonious world economy, which was going to be based on... The assumption was it was going to be based on a planned economy using computerization. And he got together with Konrad Zusser, who was a German pioneer of computing from the 1940s, who built one of the first stored program computers, arguably. He built the very first stored program computer. And Zusser and Peters basically were developing outline ideas of how you could run the world in an equitable fashion. And this was going to be based on, on computerized planning and what Peters called the equivalence principle, which was to treat one hour of any person's life devoted to working as equal, as equivalent to one another, and that all goods would be allocated and distributed according to the amount of work that went into them, that this was a way of equalizing income of people across the world and creating a, an equal and harmonious economy at a world scale. It wouldn't be based on private trading, but would be based on collective planning at a world scale and distribution to people would be in proportion to the number of hours they work. So a coffee grower in a plantation in Ecuador or something would get the same wage maybe as a, as a cattle farmer in southwest of France based on the number of hours they put in and not based on some kind of trade inequality. Yeah. 
there are problems with it, obviously, in that you, you may have widely different labor productivities in different parts of the world. And if they're producing the same thing, is it the work in the most productive place or the work in the least productive place or the average of the two that the, the commodity is or the good is sold to consumers for? So it, it's a moot point which it should be. But uh, this is a, a problem that any system of pricing in a socialist economy would have, whether you, you'd sell things for average cost or the most expensive or the cheapest. Because in, in general, in, in modern society, you have increasing returns to scale, so that if you sell things at their marginal cost, the great bulk of producers can't compete with it, uh, because their cost is above the margin. Can you just explain what you mean by marginal cost there? Well, well, take two contrasting industries. Take the, the oil industry and the software industry. Okay? The oil industry is an increasing marginal cost industry. The software industry is a declining marginal cost industry. If you're going to produce more oil in the world at the moment, you have to start extracting it from tar sands and shales. And the cost of producing a barrel of oil from these marginal fields is much higher than pumping it from Saudi. Okay? So that when prices are high, these marginal fields like the shale oil that is obtained by fracking, etc., becomes competitive and they can be able to, to, to produce things. On the other hand, look at the software industry. You take something like the Windows operating system. It costs Microsoft a certain amount to produce a new version of Windows, but it costs them only a tiny amount to distribute an additional copy of that to another computer. So the marginal cost is way below the average cost in the software industry. Now, if in the absence of legal constraints, which prohibit people from just copying the software for free, then the private software industry would never be viable because the actual marginal cost of a, a single copy of Windows might be 20 pence or something, whereas Microsoft sell that for, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds. So there's a huge gap between the marginal cost and what they sell them for, and that makes Microsoft very profitable. But that kind of markup over marginal cost is only sustainable if you've got some legal protections which allow monopolies to exist. In the absence of the, the laws against software piracy or software copying, calling software copying piracy, in the absence of such laws, software would be distributed at its marginal cost and the private software producers wouldn't be able to operate. So does the equivalent principle then that Arnold Peters was talking about, do these rely on a, on a state structure? I think it would be fair to say yes. So you have some kind of a central organization for planning of, of these things? Well, he's assuming some kind of international organization, um, presumably some sort of successor to or extension of the United Nations doing it, or some kind of democratic version of the United Nations doing it. Uh, Peters is very, was very ambitious in his proposals because he's talking about something for the world as a whole. So essentially you have to think of it as some supranational body. How does this equivalence principle then fit together with our modern computing power? Well, you would need, 
be quite large computing power to work out how much work had gone into making each thing. But it's no more than is currently used for monetary cost accounting, really. Maybe a bit more, but um, certainly nothing of the scale that is required for, for running Google. You, you basically have to have keep records of all the, the factories uh, making things across the world, keep records of all the, the stocks of things which are, are moving into the factory, where they come from, what they are, how much work went into them, how many hours work have done each day in the factory. You probably need to say, also to be realistic, how, what education level each of the, the employees had, and therefore how much accumulated education work went into producing the thing. Because you can't just take the work that someone spends there, you have to take into account the time they've had to train themselves up to be able to do that. So it is quite quite extensive calculations, but they're they're very tractable by modern standards of computation. So essentially what we're saying then is that we have principles for calculation of at least a socialist society where everybody gets as much as they've put in out and we can plan what is needed using these new computers quite easily. Well, when we say quite easily, we can say that in principle it's quite easy in the sense that in principle it's quite easy to to build the Google PageRank algorithm. But... Uh, the practice requires a lot of equipment and a lot of software engineers working for quite a long time to do it. But it's, it's a, a problem no larger in principle than that of indexing all the, the documents on the web, which we do routinely anyway. It, you, you couldn't do it straight off. The full Google system wasn't done straight off, took, took a while to, to build up. But a lot of the technology and a lot of the experience that has been developed for text retrieval on the web is actually based on similar mathematical techniques to those required for, for linear programming, large technologies. I've read some stuff about principles maybe of anarchist societies or social libertarian societies where they would have the idea of things being planned in a similar fashion. Yet in that literature, I don't really come across the idea of computers too much. You know, if we were to talk about how the Spanish Revolution would have thought they would have been able to plan it, there wasn't that much emphasis on computation. Why is that, or was it, or have I got the wrong end of the stick? Well, I mean, if they hadn't uh, used... At that time, the only two ways you could do it were either to have some kind of market or to have some kind of bureaucratic administration. There wouldn't really have been any other way. The different anarchist communes would have had to end up trading with one another if they were going to remain completely independent. If they weren't going to remain independent, they'd have had to set up a, a planning ministry similar to God's plan. What computing does is it moves the computations into an automated system if you think of both an old market system or an old bureaucracy, in both cases you have human calculations, but they're just different people doing it. In the case of a market economy, it would be the purchasing managers of all the different places and sales managers that did the calculations. In the case of a, 
a planning ministry, the civil servants doing the calculations. But the same basic calculations still have to be done in order to balance output and, and inputs. The difference is, and this was a point that the Austrians were saying, is that in the market case you have some method of comparing two different ways of producing things, because you can compare them in terms of monetary cost. And the argument was that the planning ministry would have no way of doing that. What Kantorovich showed was that if you agree on the mix of outputs you want, then a planning ministry with computers available to it can arrive at an equally rational or more rational allocation of resources than a market could. So instead of relying on, on money and sales managers to do it, you can rely on, you know, how you optimize this so many dimensional matrix of inputs and outputs to optimize it for for the level of outputs you want. Yes, yes. But the, the key thing is you need to, to know what the mix of outputs you want is, what ratios you want to produce things in. Now, Kantorovich just assumed the planning ministry had decided on the, the ratios, and once it had decided on the ratios, this is the way you do it. You could still operate some kind of uh, consumer goods market to arrive at an optimal optimal ratio of outputs. But I think the standard accounts of what, how consumer sovereignty work underestimate the degree to which consumer sovereignty is shaped, or consumer preferences are shaped to meet industrial needs by, by advertising, etc., so that, it, in fact, you, you need to have something equivalent ways of shaping people's preferences, I think, if it was to work. I mean, when, the, when they tried to introduce some of these things in the latter stages of the Soviet Union and started to adjust output on the basis of sales data, when they started putting in computerized networks to do this, you got the complaint that people only considered something desirable if it was in short supply. And once it started, to, the, the the plan adjusted and started to produce masses of it, people thought, oh, this is just, you know, everyday trash, we don't want it anymore. So um, what stops everyday trash from being regarded as that in the West is expensive advertising campaigns. So uh, whether you can have cultural values which stop being things which are readily available as just cheap trash, I don't know. One, two... One, two, three. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show today, Professor. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Who will buy this wonderful morning? Such a sky you never did see. Who will tie it up with a ribbon and put it in a box for me? On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and Bronsky Beach would tell me why. You also heard the old school computer remix of Somebody I Used to Know, Lark in the Clear Air by the O'Grady sisters, and some new age rambling on the vibration of abundance by Esther Hicks. And you are now listening to John Lucian with Who Will Buy. So what am I to do to keep the 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember, if you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes. Whenever things go wrong And I would keep it as a treasure To last my whole life long I'm talking about who, who will buy This wonderful feeling I'm so high, I swear I could fly Me or mine, I don't want to lose it So what am I to do? The sky's so dark under there must be someone